Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Jeff Greger, designer, researcher and strategist, currently UX researcher at Varo Money Inc. We talked to Jeff about his experience going through an applied anthropology program coming from an industrial design background, his graduate thesis on observing design and research practices, hybridity of design and anthropology practices and how he sees it impacting theory and practice, using design as a research tool and more particularly prototyping and co-design as forms of research positionality, the tensions between design and anthropology, particularly around the concept of intervention. Lastly, he shares his advice for others transitioning into the applied anthropology space. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with uh, Jeff Gregor, design researcher and strategist. Hi Jeff. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Good. Uh, we're very excited to have you on the podcast today uh, to speak to your experience in this space. So uh, just to go right into it, can you tell me and also our listeners a bit about your career path so far? Um, sure. Yeah, it's been uh, a fun and meandering process, but I've learned that I'm amongst friends in, in the, uh, especially in the design research community. So uh, my background in college training was actually in industrial design. So physically making stuff, uh, kind of a mixture between sculpture, a little hint of ethnography. I wouldn't say necessarily anthropological, um, you know, business strategy. So making, making stuff basically, mm -hmm. uh, putting it out into the world. So that's kind of my background, kind of consulting around Silicon Valley, creating cool stuff like Bluetooth speakers and then kind of more now transitioning. Um, I'm kind of at the end of a transitional period where I decided basically one year out of college that I wanted to get more into people rather than making more stuff and want to kind of pursue more interesting challenges than necessarily were in the kind of consumer product space. Mm -hmm. And this was also kind of graduating into the middle of a recession. So things like inequality were really top of mind. So I started meeting a bunch of anthropologists and understanding that they were kind of doing the things I wanted to do as a designer, but didn't quite have the language or I guess techniques to go through. So um, yeah, so that's kind of where I am now, which is I went to grad school at the behest of one uh, Genevieve Bell, who some of mm -hmm. your listeners might be familiar with. Uh, I caught up with her after a talk some six years ago now, mm. and uh, she bought me a beer and told me to become an anthropologist. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at her behest and uh, and with uh, the advice of some other great people around Silicon Valley that I, I talked to, got into graduate school at San Jose State, mm. uh, where they have a great applied anthropology program. So it kind of felt like a natural fit not to necessarily go into more of an academic program, but a program that was trying to mix uh, ac academic practice and applied work. So now I've just submitted uh, the final draft of my thesis to my advisor, uh, 
<laughs> not two weeks ago. So this is kind of an exciting time. So now you find me in the real interesting spot. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have a similar story uh, like yours with Genevieve Bell, um, but mine happened in Brazil and it was over a caipirinha. <laughs> but uh, it was the same. I was working in business for a long time and then I ended up uh, working for this cuckoo company that loved anthropology. Um, and um, yeah, I, I worked with some anthropologists on a project and then one of them kind of sparked my interest. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 really nice to 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 resonate with other people's um uh coming stories into anthropology. Mm -hmm. How how did you experience the program of applied anthropology um uh, coming from your background? Um it seemed to be the ideal thing for me. So I I guess I kind of realized having gone to some academic conferences that it was odd to come to anthropology having only met practitioners. Mm. Um I didn't realize how how I guess strange they were, and especially in in uh, more academic spaces. Um, I guess becoming more normalized, but but it felt you know perfectly normal. We had uh, at San Jose State um, people who kind of work on both sides, kind of working more on these kind of critical spaces, um, but also making sure to uh, keep up engagement and encouraging their students to go out there. Uh, into practice. So kind of this dual preparation for, you know, if we wanted to go on towards a PhD program, that's great. But a lot of the students do go into, um, you know, working for whether it's the National Park Service or corporations mm -hmm. or nonprofits. And I always say, too, that it was kind of the master's in design that I never had. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really expecting that, but it was actually really pleasant. So having gone through an industrial design course where you create material culture, nobody ever said the words material culture, mm. a wonderful revelation. Yeah. And getting to do uh, you know, partnerships with uh, with Melissa Sefkin at Nissan uh, on their autonomous vehicles program so that there was a lot of opportunity to kind of explore all sorts of different facets and not just uh, cultural anthropology, but also archaeology and physical anthropology. So. Um, the program was ideal, and I still am very close to you know a lot of people in the program, and and also um, the professors, including uh, Jan English Lewick, who we run this ethno breakfast group out here. I don't know; I can tell you a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, if that, you're interested, <laughs> we we have I think something similar here in Amsterdam called Ethnoboral, and I think in yeah. that yeah yeah, and I think in Dutch boral means uh, some form of get together over snacks and drinks. It's not breakfast, yep. but it's kind of the same concept, I guess. That was uh, <laughs> set up by Erin Taylor. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I I, uh, I told her a lot about ethno breakfast when we met up at uh, Epic two years ago. So I, I can't claim all the credit. She definitely yeah. put out all the hard work of it, but it was really cool that um, she was able to pick up that model and run with it. And I'd really love to see that sprout up in other places. Hmm. But I can like give a little brief... Uh, uh, explanation, which is the way it works out here, is that I guess originally it was a really small group, uh, maybe 15 mm -hmm. odd years ago. The the oral history is, is definitely out there already, but uh, it was basically when Silicon Valley only had a handful of people doing design research, particularly mm -hmm. uh, anthropologists and, and, and sociologists working in that space. So they would just meet up together. Uh, regularly to kind of fetch about work and and uh, mm -hmm. and kind of talk about the the challenges that they were coming up with and again before my time but uh, but yeah it kind of got recently revived um, through Nissan um, with uh, Giddy Jordan and Melissa Sefkin there at least initially and then then it started becoming these more regular meetings of around like thirty 
practitioners, um, you know, generally around the ethnographic researchers, um, anthropologists, but also designers and ethno-curious yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just kind of informal conversations once a month, and the hosts rotate um, to different companies and universities around the Bay Area out here. And uh, yeah, it's been really valuable uh, community of practice that's especially during my uh, education. Now I'm happy to see even more people coming in in cohorts behind me, getting engaged with the group. It's a really great way to kind of connect more experience yeah. and more junior practitioners. Jeff, coming back to uh, the entry into this world, huh? um, I'm very curious about your program and how do they make make it so that you have, let's say, a smooth landing into anthropology um, <laughs> when it's applied, you know, because I, I look back on my own process um, which was also was not a program in applied anthropology, was actually classical anthropology, but it was a short program. So I personally had a, it was a very brutal landing into the world of um, all of these wonderful people, um, you know, that I've, I've never heard anything about, but they were weaved through conversations in a very natural way, you know, like Foucault and Abudio and Gertz and... It's like, I remember, to be honest, my first class of anthropology afterwards, I recorded it and I was listening back to it with the dictionary in front of me. <laughs> um, so not one phrase I could understand at the beginning. What, what do you mean? Because it's also referential. Sorry for this long way of coming oh, into yeah. the question, but uh, I would assume just because your program is particularly applied, they, 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 they make that transition in a different way. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, um, I guess I should also kind of mention what my, my headspace was coming into this program. So I kind of had played the autodidact for a couple of years coming into, uh, you know, exploring whether I should go into PhD programs, talking to people, then attending and presenting at a couple of conferences, including um, the Society for Applied Anthropology mm. and uh, Society for Economic Anthropology before I started school. So trying to familiarize myself with those spaces, but it was still also foreign. It was... Uh, you know, I, I, I came out of uh, design school. I had a, a BS from the art department in design, and it's essentially a vocational degree. Mm. Um, so I had no experience really writing papers more than, you know, a couple of pages long. And again, yeah, the vocabulary and, and kind of I was very nervous about, you know, how do you cite things and <laughs> you know, how, how do you even read uh read critically. So all of those were on top of trying to understand the the subject matter, just kind of cultural issues of, of trying to understand how to navigate the uh, the social space of, of, of academia and, and the, uh, the social science classroom. So beyond that, though, uh, the program did do an excellent job. Um, I think, you know, probably half of the students or, or a third of the students were actually coming in from the undergrad program at San Jose State. So a lot of them already had some of the familiarity and, and many of them did have you know, backgrounds in anthropology, not necessarily mm-hmm. everyone, but there was never really an expectation. Um, and I was able to kind of come up to speed relatively quickly because uh, there were kind of a series of crash courses during our, our first year where it's about, I think, three, three hour classes on uh, evenings, which is really nice because it was set up for people who were work during the day. And there was never a pure theory class. It was a theory and practice class mm-hmm. um, that was kind of a overarching 
overview of, of the entire history of the uh, anthropology, uh, anthropology and sociology primarily really a whirlwind. It was a lot of, of names that I think I had heard of, but never really engaged with. Again, yeah, no, learning who Foucault was and <laughs> now being able to bandy that about, like I actually know <laughs> more than, more than a, a little bit about him. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you land in your, um, in your research? Um, so that was something that I actually had prepared because I, I initially was preparing for a PhD program. So I basically attempted to adapt what I was proposing for a PhD project into a master's project, which, uh, as you can imagine, turned into a PhD dissertation size master's thesis yeah. in the end, <laughs> um, uh, much uh, to the chagrin, I think, of my advisor, who is currently reading over the draft. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, the, the topic actually seemed kind of a, a natural one because it, it really did come out of this whole... I'm glad you asked about this kind of transitional process of, of going into anthropology because it was these conversations with practitioners and trying to see the work that they were doing. Um, and then also at the same time, too, uh, seeing um, the applications, even when I was still a, an industrial designer, seeing kind of more humanitarian applications for design. Uh, a lot of times industrial designers were uh, creating... Uh, whether it's you know, farm implements or uh, solar lanterns, a lot of a lot of products developed for for really low wealth countries, but also seeing how a lot of those ended up failing in the end, and I think that was that was that fascinating little window of okay, well, why did this all fail, and why do people who think like me, you know, a, a white man designer, you know, mm -hmm. how, how do people people like me make mistakes uh, mm -hmm. when they're trying trying to do good? So oh. that kind of question has been sticking with me for yeah. a very long time. And yes, uh, so it was, I had a real interest in economic issues. Again, as I mentioned, the uh, hanging out around the recession, thinking a lot about inequality, and then trying to see, okay, well, what what are design professionals and, and uh, design researchers doing in this area? And during this time, I met up with Fair Money, which is this... Uh, collective of of researchers and uh, and design professionals who was studying payday lending, so these kind of mm -hmm. short term loans in Silicon Valley, especially at a time when Americans were thinking a lot about predatory lending. Yeah. Um, really trying to see how people are making ends meet uh, in this growing inequality uh, of Silicon Valley, where we have a lot of hyper rich and and very poor and um, now I'm realizing that 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 knowledge is no longer regionally contained. I think that is now seen around the world, um, especially with issues of, of houseless populations in in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this group of uh, researchers and designers was getting together to try and understand how to design maybe ethical alternatives to these very high interest loans. And that project started out with doing a lot of research around the Bay with people who are taking out these loans. And through the Anthro Design Listserv, um, I found out that they were going to be talking about some of their preliminary results and ended up joining that group. And that was one of the most fortuitous events of, mm -hmm. of the, definitely of the past couple of years. And that ended up being a, a sort of mentorship opportunity. And I, I kind of treated it as a discrete sort of, okay, this was a, a way to kind of understand the field. But but this idea of studying money has also stuck with me for a long time. So I know yeah. I'm, I'm pulling a lot of different things together here, but eventually it became, you know, how are 
design professionals and uh, ethnographers looking at the issue of what's called financial inclusion. So designing financial services for low-income communities. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of how I got into the idea of researching researchers mm-hmm. and really trying to be a little reflexive on the kind of work that we were doing as a, a very small group of fair money, um, but also the work that others were doing, consulting with you know Gates Foundation funded projects, um, working more in international development contexts or working with city governments yeah. um, or mi- microfinance, those sorts of topics. So all that kind of smushed together. I had a kind of specific, it's broad, but specific area of humanitarian design practice to look at. Um, and I actually had a population, um, this this fair money group that I was already working with. So yeah, like that's mm-hmm. at least how I, how I ended up on this topic. And, and I very it's very hard to detach i guess you know my professional development and and career path from uh, my research interests because it yeah. really is a, a form of career research and trying to understand what i might be getting into yeah. uh, in the future sounds like it so you basically deconstructed intent and how it lands in products and effect or mm-hmm. you stopped before effect did you did you look into that as well we never quite got to the uh, implementation phase. I, I did really want to, you know, embed with a, you know, IDEO.org or or Frog Design or one of these larger kind of more formal organization teams. But mm-hmm. as you can imagine, that would be really hard to get approval to do research yeah. on on a, a very closed sort of process like that. So yeah, I, I didn't really get to see the implementation part, and that is that is actually what I want to get a, a piece of in the, in the future. But, but there was still a lot to be seen at this kind of upstream phase because it was looking at this area of convergence between design and anthropology. I think it's design professionals moving into areas where anthropologists have traditionally practiced, particularly working with NGOs and mm-hmm. looking at international development projects and, and looking at organizations. So rather than, I think, what, a, what oftentimes happens where anthropologists are entering the design spaces. I think the, this was a, an example of the reverse flow and there was kind of a hybridity of practice that was happening hmm. um, between the two fields. And I, I think some really productive, yeah. uh, productive tensions definitely yeah, yeah. was, was the, the outcome of a lot of this. I, I wonder if you could speak a bit more to that, because I think this is fascinating for, um, for people like, like me, but also our listeners that are, um, experiencing also these types of forms of hybridity. Um, how have you seen it affect theory and practice from both ends? Um, so I think there's been a, a lot of bit work being done down at was it UC San Diego with Keith Murphy. I was trying to remember his name for a second there. Uh, an anthropologist who has been studying kind of design practice and, and trying to theorize the interfaces between design and anthropology and this and you know anthropologizing the uh, the studio design studio environment. Mm-hmm. So rather than doing what uh, kind of traditionally has been happening, where we oftentimes look at things like material culture, look at uh, or popular culture, looking at how people think uh, and, and interact with with products, thinking upstream of how social theories and so ideas about society and you know how society should look how that actually does become crystallized into project uh, products um, something that Paul Durish and Genevieve Bell did write about um, that whole idea of social theories crystallized mm-hmm. um, really stuck with me so there that, so that was kind of the 
I guess, interest mm-hmm. of anthropology in design, um, but also looking at how anthropologists have started to adopt some of the ideas of designers who are working in teams to do research and, and mm-hmm. to talk about issues rather than this idea of the lone ethnographer. So I think there was a lot of interesting and, and productive uh, interactions there. But, uh, but also this idea, too, of using design as a research tool. So using prototypes and, mm-hmm. and co-design as, as a form of research, I think is also one of the most interesting spaces. So, you know, having kind of a, a, a partially formed idea and, and then looking at how people react to it and how they would suggest modifying it, yeah. and what that reveals about their values and, and especially um, using that to explore futures, possible futures. Yeah, yeah. I, I can talk a little bit too about um, when it's not so euphoric uh, <laughs> between designers and anthropologists. Uh, I think that's probably the most interesting place. Um, I, I definitely uh, like would like to hear more about that. But just before that, I had one question <laughs> around positionality, um, mm-hmm. positionality as an anthropologist within that group and within within a project. Have you have you seen them struggle with that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I have to say uh, I was struggling with my own positionality plenty, uh, you know, in in actually researching some of these spaces, you know, thinking about how how my relationship to to you know, friends and colleagues, and but also to the idea of uh, research sub the people who are actually being researched. So that has actually been like a really big piece was thinking about power and privilege, um, and definitely looking at the space from the perspective of action anthropology um, mm. and looking at it at, through the lens of how other anthropologists have looked at activism in mm. order to try and understand the kind of different tensions that people were feeling, um, mm-hmm. you know, being pulled back and forth between needing to do what's right for whatever organization that they're working on, but then recognizing power structures and trying to subvert maybe or, or trying to use the ethnographic research and design process as ways to put more power in the hands of people who will actually be using the products. So that was something that I heard over and over mm-hmm. again was really trying to, you know, this, this overriding faith in things like service design uh, and ethnographic methods that, that were ways to, at least in some way, uh, you know, reverse some of the, the power flows, but again, realizing too that they had they they were definitely bounded by the constraints of the institutions that they were working with. The idea that, well, we're still getting paid to design an app, and we really want to address you know underlying issues of how people are getting or why people certain people are getting paid less money than others. So dealing with with issues of, of scope and and limitations. So it, it, it was, I guess, their positionality with regard to their mm. uh, clients and funders, but also their role as intermediaries with uh, vul- particularly very vulnerable um, low-income groups. So yeah. I think, I don't know if that, like, that answers any of your questions there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because I think it, it, may, it also speaks a bit to what was my follow-up question, which you really covered, which was about... Um, the ethics of designing interventions and and, and who mm-hmm. who are you designing it for and um, from what position you're designing it and um, yeah so I think I think you kind of landed into that as well and and I do think that it 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 kind of connects with challenges around posi- posi- positionality 
um, because positionality and intervention, we, you can't really separate them that easily. Yeah, this is this has actually been. Um, I, I only recently finished reading Anand Gerdadas's book, uh, Winners Take All, mm. um, which deals a lot with this, especially around ideas of philanthropic capitalism and and uh, kind of. Uh, uh, Silicon Valley tech industry approaches to very large social issues, particularly around poverty and inequality. Well, not necessarily inequality, actually, that's mm -hmm. the problem. Uh, the very large critique of what happens in Davos and the sorts of yeah. uh, bounded change making that comes out of industry. And that, that has been really inspiring because it, it does definitely nest with what I've been seeing from the perspective of people who are being directed by these uh, philanthropic organizations and where they're getting resistance uh, when they propose things like, well, we need to actually change how how this economic system works. We can't just knock the hard edges off of poverty. And so, really seeing what are the systemic barriers to doing good, and these are these are now the kind of looking forward sorts of conversations. I know I'm going to have to grapple with. Um, in my career, but uh, I also now know that there are plenty of other people out there thinking through these issues. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to uh, the topic that you proposed, which I, I also really love, which is mm -hmm. some of the areas of this intersection between design and anthropology where it doesn't go as smoothly. Yeah, uh, so I've, I've characterized this in, in very uh, broad strokes as the tensions between hand-wringing and hubris. Um, so Typically, the hubristic side, uh, it was kind of what I was mentioning uh, earlier, which is looking at how particularly large city planning projects and kind of high modernist uh, development of these, um, we can maybe look at like housing projects of the mid 20th century. Um, I think you've got plenty uh, even in uh, <laughs> in the Netherlands right mm, now. Too. Yes, so, yes. And, and looking at, at projects like those, very well-meaning projects that... Um, didn't always account for how people actually live their lives, but presume how they should live their lives and, and who was given the authority and why why the interests of designers often aligned with the interests of dictators. Mm -hmm. Because again, uh, as designers, uh, I, I can say this with, with love for all the people that, uh, that I, I have worked with and, and, and also for my former self, I've often wanted to dictate. I've always had this uh, if only people would ellipses, uh, <laughs> mm. you know, you, you really, you are on that side of, um, you know, we are creating society and, and, and kind of getting drunk on that power to shape people's lives in really profound ways. Um, so there's that hubristic side, but I, I also see the other side to hubris, which, uh, Carolyn Rouse has, has talked a little bit about this, um, that, you actually maybe need a little bit of hubris to get really big things done. You know, to not focus so much on on what's uh, what's holding back progress, um, to get kind of a, a larger coalition together. So there, there's kind of two sides to that coin, um, because because hubris can also be hope. But that the other the other side too, this kind of position that's more associated with anthropology, and again, caricature caricature of anthropology is this kind of hand wringing side. And you could you could substitute anthropologists, uh, you know, other other groups uh, engaged in activism with um, maybe thinking a little bit too reflexively sometimes, um, and really worrying about this idea of intervention and, and being kind of anti-doing anything at all, maybe, or, or only trying to engage in very, very small scales for fear of 
you know, stepping on toes or, or, or playing into these traditional power hierarchies. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that can lead to sort of paralysis. And it's definitely something that I ran into hanging around uh, Fair Money and, and some of the other groups that I was working with. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really, the desire to do good, but the knowledge that you could also really mess with people's lives can can really stop action in, in, in its place. But um, there's, I guess, uh, the other side of it too, though, is, is that you really need that reflexivity. Um, mm. You do need people to, to go out there and say, hey, what what do people actually need? Who's not being involved in this conversation and why? You know, thinking about, okay, well, do we need maybe to try and fix climate change with a specific technology? Or do we have to say, hey, this is a little too utopian, a little too hubristic, um, and people are going to get maybe hurt by this? So trying to figure out where where that happy medium between mm-hmm. these two poles is. And, and again, broadly, um, I might say that they, re- they identify with the fields of design and anthropology, but I think those are conflicts between or, or within both designers and anthropologists. Yeah. And, and, and again, I'm speaking of this both from um, the people that I, I've, I've uh, talked to in my research, but also as having experienced that um, this is definitely a, a sort of uh, trying to exercise some of those demons uh, through research. Yeah. Uh, how do you think this, this, this could, um, could get solved or how do you, how, how do you see it? I definitely don't think there's, there's an easy way. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I actually think that the tension is actually an important spot. It's actually when somebody yeah. goes too far in either direction is that's the real problem. And the yeah, yeah. Um, the problem is uh, is homogeneity. Hmm. So uh, homogeneity of ideas, um, not just of disciplines, but of classes, and and all sorts of different people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, but I do say class specifically because oftentimes when particularly people in Silicon Valley speak about diversity, they often aren't uh, including that that important characteristic. Uh, thinking through those, but also having people to to call you out, to to actually play out these sorts of arguments and not, not shying away. Um, again, coming back to um, something that was that Anand Girdas was talking about, which was this idea that the problem is pe- people feeling too good, I guess, about the change that they're making. Yeah. And, this comes out of whether it's looking at these kind of humanitarian design portfolios coming out of uh, NGOs or design consultancies or, or corporate social responsibility programs. Everybody's trying to promote themselves, but nobody is really saying that actually a lot of the times this doesn't go anywhere or sometimes makes the problem worse, but we haven't actually evaluated it to, uh, to find out uh, what works because – um, everybody's trying to get that next meal ticket. Um, so those are some like real structural barriers. And those are things that I think are important to keep an, an eye on. What are, what are the, the incentives and the limitations on doing good? And, um, mm-hmm. and there are some very, very big ones, especially in this kind of humanitarian um, yeah. design access space. Yeah. I, I really like, um, I, I really like the way you, you put it. And particularly this focus on staying with these points of tension um, I want to ask you because one of the one of the challenges that I also see in applied anthropology versus design is, and in general the technology space is this. Um, how do you say this? This perception of time and speed. 
Mm-hmm. And, that, exactly. and that's how, you know, like when you got, get caught up in, you know, accelerated time to, to, to do, to act, to think, some, somehow it's very difficult to stay in those spaces of uh, tension, in those spaces of reflection, to ask more questions, because it seems as if the project is slowing down or it's not moving at this idealized, accelerated spa- uh, speed that... Um, that technology puts this expectation in us. And I, I think to a certain extent, technology comes with this cruel um, idealism that we can change and we can change so fast. And um, the fact that you have to run behind it, but if you run fast enough, you will be able to build something amazing really fast, you know? Mm-hmm. So how, yeah. have, have you felt that kind of pressure of time and the constraints of time in your project too? Uh, yes, yes. And again, this was something that came up over and over again and why particularly Fair Money's project was such an outlier because it took um, years to get from doing the initial mm-hmm. round of, of research to actually finishing writing a report. Again, people were doing this on, on weekends in spare spare time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was really important time for reflection because these were, these were issues very close to home. Uh, but again, that would not have been allowed for in almost any context. Mm. Uh, so, and this was also a, a real point of, of contention uh, between people who were more on the design to the perspective versus, or of the uh, spectrum versus people who were kind of more towards the social science side um, was this idea of speed and time scale. Mm. Uh, and this, this kind of urgency to do something more quickly than, than others were, were necessarily willing to do. And, and this idea of wanting to keep synthesizing information and analyzing. So that, that again, that I, I should mention that earlier, that was one of the really uh, other key tensions. Um, but I think, especially when you're working around the humanitarian space, the, there's really no substitute for, for the time. Um, there, there are certain you know, shortcuts, this idea of rapid ethnography, but that usually implies you have some deep well mm-hmm. of knowledge that you're drawing yeah. upon yeah. and you're just kind of refreshing it. You know, I was recently having a conversation about hackathons, particularly hackathons around uh, uh, really important issues. And this is something that came up, especially there's plenty of financial service hackathons, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, trying to solve a very large and intractable issue um, in kind of a sort of carnivalesque environment uh you know over a couple of days um mm. and and again this is this is i guess going maybe towards that feel good side of things and i think that yeah sometimes you can set these up in such a way that they they do provide real um benefits for organizations but i think just as often and probably more often you know it's not producing transformative change it's producing kind of expected uh sorts of solutions especially when the the terms and the and the framing of the, the especially when it's a competition, that really limits yeah. what's being proposed yeah. Yeah. Um, and who's who's funding it. Oftentimes, these financial uh, financial inclusion hackathons are being funded by large banking organizations. That already kind of constrains what's going yeah. to be proposed. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm so mindful of our time, but I I really yeah. wanted I I wanted to because this this hackathon um, comment that you made really reminds me of my own, um, how do you say, challenges with the concept of sprinting uh, in projects. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think, I think in general, I, I, like, I, I like some of the parts of, of sprinting and, and, and scrum studio models. And, um, but on the other hand, they really put the, the, the time in front of everything else. 
Um, and sometimes is this good because it accelerates paralyzed uh, moments, uh, but sometimes it can be paralyzing in itself, especially when you're trying to take the time to crack something that is very difficult. So, yeah, mm. yeah, I was actually going to say too that uh, there's a useful analogy from uh, from my time hanging out with mechanical engineers. This idea of rework. Mm. Um, the idea that uh, you know, if you mess something up upstream, you're going to have to fix it eventually. Yeah. Um, and I think that does come into play when uh, you maybe didn't give enough time to looking at a problem because of this idea that we need to show progress constantly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think in in designing technology products, this is this can be so hurtful, even even for for. Um, um, for, for everybody in the team, right? Because you're coding into an architecture that, that if, you don't, if you don't understand what you're trying to do and you're not mindful of that, then you're just going to build something that it's not, it's a maze. It's, it's, it's not something that at the end will, will help you. And as, as far as you progress into it, if, if, if that is not clear from the front, uh, you're just going to build stuff that it's difficult to tear down for either time or money or both or, yeah. I love this. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I also have to say too, um, as as part of the reason why I became more of a disgruntled designer was that one too many people told me to stop thinking so much, and that's that kind of really speaks to a lot of this. This you know, you just need to speed up and show something. I don't care if it's good; it needs to just be out there. Um, but yeah, usually that is detrimental to the project in in the end. Um, Awesome. Jeff, before we close off, um, I wanted to ask you if you have, let's say from your experience navigating the space, if you have any advice to those of our listeners that are either in, you know, academia, trying to transition into design or the other way around, like what, what would be, if you would have to just give them one advice or two advices, what would that be? I think the big one is that people are more generous th with their time than you might think. Hmm. Uh, and are, we're willing to talk about their experiences. And I, I have very much benefited from this. I always say that I was raised by this village of people. I did mention those ethno breakfasts mm. and mm. Uh, and the kind of communities that swirl around there. And I think that that has been some of the most valuable thing in making this transition, but also kind of going forward too, I'm going to be relying on those communities to be spaces where these sorts of tensions and, and debates can play out. So that's kind of one of one of the big pieces and then the other part is to say that i was just at the american anthropological association meeting we had it on on our home turf here in san jose mm -hmm. and there were a surprising amount of sessions about making transitions from academia to to industry and design researchers being on stage um a lot of really interesting conversations um that were once kind of relegated more to uh, more industry-oriented events like uh, Epic, but now it's kind of becoming recognized that there aren't enough tenure-track jobs out there, and maybe um, the most influence that anthropologists uh, can have in the world isn't necessarily contained to to journal articles and, and work in academia. Um, that there mm -hmm. can be other other career paths, and I think really important ones that are are kind. Of what I'm hoping for, which is a career balance between academia mm -hmm. and industry. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, so it's been a pleasure having you to, uh, today with us. Um, and uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed this conversation just as much as, much as I have. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, I, I'm just going to put all the links below of the um, wonderful people and um, 
uh, work that you've mentioned down below. And also, if you have something to share already from your thesis, um, I, we can do that as well. All right, sounds great. <laughs> Bye, Jeff. Goodbye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.